Welcome everyone to episode seven of Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Justine Jecker and I'll be hosting today's episode with Holly Reed and guest Samira Omar. We're returning to the discussions surrounding social accountability to explore common downfalls and the ever-growing opportunities for change. This is the first episode with a guest who isn't an occupational therapist, but who has been strongly tied to the world of occupational therapy over the past few years. In her student role, Samira and other student colleagues hosted a safe space gathering over the summer that focused on moving beyond occupational narratives of hope, equity, and justice towards reimagining, raising consciousness, restoring balance, and fostering a new era of accountability. In this space, students have the opportunity to identify, challenge, and raise critical awareness of ways in which research and practice within occupational therapy disproportionately impacts Black, Indigenous, and people of colour. Samira Omar is a PhD candidate in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto and a trainee in the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab. Her doctoral research focuses on institutional anti-Black racism manifests in rehabilitation and shapes the everyday occupational life trajectories of Black survivors of traumatic brain injury and their caregivers. She has been invited to speak and teach nationally and internationally about these intersectional and systemic issues in rehabilitation to a wide range of audiences. Holly Reed is a PhD student at the University of British Columbia, studying the interrelated nature of intersections of identity and occupational engagement. Their research will center on the occupational barriers and opportunities experienced by queer and or trans Indigenous peoples in relation to their intersectional identities. And they have presented and been a panelist at national and international conferences including the Disrupt OT event in August 2021. Welcome to you both, Samira and Holly. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. So today's podcast is focused on understanding the narratives of hope, equity, and justice in relation to social accountability. Samira, I'm wondering how did the hosting of this event this past summer contribute towards engaging in the change process for BIPOC populations? Well, to start off with, I just want to thank both of you for inviting me uh, to this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, and to respond to that, I guess this was the first time that um, an event to this extent was held just for um, occupational therapy and occupational students across Canada. The purpose of the event was to specifically bring together uh, Black, Indigenous and racialized students across Canada in these different programs and their allies um, to ultimately um, build relations with one another, but move past just sharing our narratives and to, to have a conversation or a dialogue more so about how do we take action against these oppressive structures and what does it mean to for us as like student trainees, either in research or in clinical practice to be embedded within these structures and more so to have an opportunity to reflect inwards and outwards um, both silently, passively, 
and also um, outwardly to one another. And so more than anything, it was an opportunity to foster a new era of accountability um, and specifically to do that by starting with like, what does it mean to um, be accountable to one another? How, what does it mean to build relationships with one another? Because we can talk about action, we can talk about problems, but these are not issues that can be solved by just one of us on our own. Like we need to be able to understand the problem and understand it from the perspectives of those who are deeply impacted by it, but also get to know one another because all good work happens in numbers. And um, more than anything, this was the opportunity to foster that sense of belonging and to reestablish like what it means to be able to be on this journey together and to be collectively organizing towards this um, transformative change that we hope to see. The term BIPOC, this is something that I became aware of uh, only this year, actually, at the CAOT conf virtual conference. And I remember looking it up because I was wondering, what does that mean? I'm wondering about that grouping of that language. So, so we're seeing Black, Indigenous and persons of colour coming together with kind of the shared purpose. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept of how people within this group feel about being grouped together and even for the event itself was were there any challenges with people who might have identified outside of that group in terms of not attending yeah absolutely um so i think bipoc is often um a term that we use to kind of like group all the quote-unquote like marginalized people i i personally don't like that language um and here are my thoughts on it Specifically, um, I don't really like the language of BIPOC because I think people who are Black, people who are Indigenous, and people of colour like uniquely face their own kinds of barriers. And when we group everyone together, we minimize the unique challenges that people who are Black experience, that people who are Indigenous experience. And so I think it's an easy way to say that like we are addressing the needs of BIPOC students. We are addressing diversity, but not necessarily like in tune to the unique struggles of like black people, for example, who are experiencing disability um, and so forth. And so I think in this event, um, because we were all students of color um, organizing it for the most part, I think the relation, like the relationality, so building relationships was what allowed us to come to a place of mutual ground and mutual understanding. Without building relationships, honestly, we wouldn't have been able to put together the event that we did because of those um, unspoken dynamics of, um, you know, the implications of what it means to be like the only Black person in that space. I want to be able to advocate for issues that deeply impact Black people, um, but how do I do that if we're not all on that, on that same agenda? And so part of building relationships means understanding um, where we all come from uh, on a basis that can allow us to organize with one another, to support each other um, when it comes to the different issues that impact us deeply, because what impacts me may not impact the next person next to me. And, you know, if we look at it from an intersectional aspect as well, too, socioeconomic class, like gender, disability, all these things also impact like how you see the world and what issues are issues for you um, and the people around you. And so I think the language of BIPOC it's important in terms of um, 
understanding that these are individuals that experience marginalization. But I think it, it starts to get a little bit like muddy when we start to like organize for particular causes. When we don't name like whose voices are at the center, I think it starts to become a little bit more challenging to honestly, like sometimes open up safe spaces for black students to also share their experiences where it's not being trumped by the experiences of other students of color, because this is a space that's opened up for all quote unquote BIPOC students. So I think it really depends on how the language is being used. But for the most part, like um, it's not language that I often like to use. It really depends on like if it's in writing or um if we're using it kind of like in an event, in the scope of an event. But I think um, our struggles and I guess like also what made us passionate and really um, committed to wanting to put together an event like this and knowing that this event is, it's the first of its kind. It's a conversation starter, it's an icebreaker. And so we know that in order to go more deeper into these um, issues, we need to get to know one another. We need to know who's out there, um, we need to meet like our fellow other like black um, trainees, indigenous trainees who are OTs. And this space was catered for that so that we can bring each other together, get to know one another, while also understanding that in the future, we're likely going to have like different spaces to open up dialogues for um, students who are just black, students who are just indigenous and other um, racialized folks so that we can also um, have dialogues that are a lot more, I don't want to say authentic, but not everything will come up in spaces um, depending on who's present. And so we knew that going into this, um, but we also knew that this is the first time that we're bringing students together. And so, yeah. I think that was really helpful to understand the term because it is a racialized term. And if you don't fall in BIPOC, the alternative is you're white, you know, if we're being really transparent here, because if you don't, and that's an, but that's an important thing to understand. And it's important to understand when to use that term, when it's appropriate, mm -hmm. um, kind of the umbrella impact of it, because the, you know, the event that you were part of, it's talking about hope, equity, and justice. So those three things are tied together in what the BIPOC populations, multiple populations represent. And so I'm going to ask Holly because um, Holly's research is focused on working with um, people of different Indigenous background. Do you see your research as belonging to the BIPOC community or how does that term, how do you feel about that term in terms of your day-to-day -day research? Yeah, it's a good question. And again, thank you for having me on the podcast as well. Um, so my research is going to be focused on building relationships with Indigenous folks who also identify as being queer or trans or perhaps both. Um, and the reason I said it's going to be focused on building relationships is because that was one thing that Samir mentioned. That's, I think, if I'm learning anything so far in my PhD journey, it's building those relationships is the foundation for my work. Because in order to hear about somebody's authentic experience and how their identities intersect um, to influence the occupations they engage in, how the social systems um, create barriers or maybe facilitate engagement. Like it's going to be really important that there's trust there. And I think when you're trying to engage with somebody who um, is of a different racial background than you. So for me, I'm, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but for people who haven't heard me talk about it, I'm Métis, so I'm Indigenous, but I'm, I'm white passing. So people identify me as white, 
Um, and so there's going to be a difference between myself and the people that I'm potentially interviewing or engaging in research with. So I have this internal um, awareness and I'm definitely mindful that engaging with BIPOC populations doesn't mean I'm interviewing um, black folks, people of color, indigenous people, and then comparing all of their experiences because that would be perpetuating harm that's been done for a really long time when you say, oh, this person, because their experience is based on the color of their skin, must be similar to the experience of this person because they're also not white. And I think that that's not an effective perspective because when you use an intersectionality lens, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, this person is indigenous and transgender and queer and of this class. And like it's um, it's digging into more of their unique identity. And I think that's Samira, what you were kind of getting at as well. Like what we need to take a step back and think about, okay, what is unique to this maybe group of people or population, even though they're also a person of color, it's gonna be very different than people who are um, cisgender men who are straight, who are maybe black. Their experience is gonna be so different than an indigenous woman who's a lesbian. And so I think drawing the, like a shared appreciation of yes, there's gonna be experiences of racism, but that's so broad and so general. We really need to get into what can we do to help these folks um, elevating their voices, sharing their experiences so that real change can come in and benefit them. And we're not looking for a one solution fits all because that's, it's never worked in the past. Why would it work this time? I think mm -hmm. it's gonna take a long time to build those relationships to then hear those perspectives and and share those stories. So BIPOC is like an umbrella term. It's like saying, what can we do for the LGBTQ plus community? It's like, well, you have so many different identities within that community. You're never gonna do one thing that's gonna help everybody. Um, so really exploring, what does it mean to be a white lesbian? What does it mean to be a bisexual man? What does it mean to be, again, a transgender indigenous person? All those people, even though they're under the same umbrella terms, those are just labels. We need to really get at each person on a on a singular basis to understand their experiences. Yeah, and it's almost as though we need a term to grab people's attention. You know, when something is really important and worth talking about, you kind of need to be bold in how you put it out there and say this is this is a big problem. And, and I think that that's what an umbrella term like BIPOC is doing is it's creating this visual of this is the really big problem, but we have to now talk about, and I don't want to call it a problem because that's not fair, but it is a situation that people have ignored for periods of time. It's caused a lot of, you know, in Canada through through the process we're going through right now in truth and reconciliation specifically with Indigenous people, but for all the inequities and inequalities that have been experienced by Black people and persons of colour, yeah, that's that's a huge problem. And so I think I'm really hearing what you're both saying, like this term is, it, it gets our attention, but now we have to get into understanding what it means specifically at these different levels and be willing to, um, like, I, I think when, you know, I'm imagining in the two events that both of you were a part of, I'm, I'm hoping to segue into that a little bit, there were some key learning pieces that, that came out of uh, the discussion that you had in the summertime, Samira, and then Holly, the Disrupt OT event that you were a part of. And I'm wondering what key messages can OTs take away in terms of the experiences that you both had at these two events? So I think for our event, um, again, because this is kind of the first time that um, an event was being done for students by students in OT to bring together like 
Black, Indigenous, and other racialized students across Canada. The, the main thing that threaded across um, the two days of our events um, was the critical consciousness aspect. I have a definition um, that I often use, and it's I'll, I'll quote Dr. Arno Kumagai. Um, he says that critical consciousness means reflective awareness of the differences in power and privilege and the inequities that are embedded in social relationships. This means fostering a reorientation of perspective towards a commitment to social justice. And so this event, one of the key main learning um, points that kind of came out of it was fostering critical consciousness, encouraging students to not only account for their own positionality, but also reflect on and continue to question pretty much everything that you do, everything that you see, everything that you read. If we live in a racist world, then we also have to understand that the assessments and the research that we read is likely racist. And so what does that mean in terms of the treatment plans that we then create when we uh, factor into the unconscious bias, the racial bias, the microaggressions, and all the different ways in which racism kind of like manifests in the real world um, in relation to how it's also perpetuated by the system? What does that mean in terms of the treatment plans that we create? Um, and what we offer to some patients and not to others. And so critical consciousness was honestly like one of the main messages that we were trying to thread in like the, 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 the panel discussions that we were having in the student activities that we led, whether it was like the, the silent passive ones that we did on the first night um, or the more interactive ones in, in the nights to follow. It was really trying to encourage students to like constantly like question, challenge and re-examine what it is that they are learning, reading and then applying in the real world. And like, what does that mean in terms of like the different communities of people that they serve? Um, and so that was honestly like one of our main messages. And then the relationship building. The, the scope of our event was to build relationships. It was to be honest about the fact that we live in a system where it's, it's a capitalist society, right? Like it's so easy for students of color to get pinned against each other because they're the only ones that exist in those spaces. And it's also easy for us to then say that, you know, everyone's now talking about diversity and inclusion and equity and justice and all these like, uh, like lingo terms and wanting to do better. Um, but I think what motivates students of color is very different than what motivates their allies. When you're in the struggle and you're honestly living it on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the creativity and the, the drive that you have is a lot more different and the intentions are also different too. And so building relationships and finding other like-minded students, their allies, and getting to know one another so that we can create safe spaces that we can open up to one another, can understand like what is it that we want to do, like how do we do that together, knowing that what I want would probably be different than what you want, but let's get on the same on one level of like understanding that was honestly like the second and probably one of the most important uh takeaway messages like from this event that we did well wow, that's incredibly powerful samira like it's what you've just said has has my mind going in a lot of directions because um 
you know, it, it's making me think. So this student was, or this, uh, sorry, event was for students, right? And, you know, but we have this kind of whole cluster, generations of OTs that represent Black and Indigenous and persons of colour who didn't, you know, they weren't fortunate enough to be part of an event like this during their education. And, you know, how are those spaces? I, it makes me wonder who, who leads this. So we're so fortunate that you stepped up to the challenge, Tamara, you and, you know, your student colleagues were able to put together an event like this and make it happen. But now that it's happened, we're in this place of, okay, this needs to keep happening. And, um, you know, do the universities lead this because they're the ones who start the education? Um, do clinicians need to come together and start to figure this out? And, and Holly and I have been in touch with a practice network that represent Black OTs of Ontario as an example of, you know, a group wanting to make make some space for these discussions and things to happen. But I'm wondering, um, at the conclusion of your event, were there recommendations in terms of who carries this forward? Because I think it's phenomenal that these reflections took place. And I'm wondering, what were the students feeling at the end of it? How, how do we move this forward? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think after you execute any kind of event like that, there's always the question of, okay, so like what's next? Um, and it's always like the hardest part. Um, and so we had students, so we did like a post event survey um, where we had students, uh, where we asked students what their thoughts were, a whole bunch of questions around like, what were your experiences like? What could we have done better? And then also like, what is it that you want to see from us kind of like moving forward? Like what are, what are issues that are important to you and what would that format look like? Um, and so we had students like recommend, um, you know, starting a book club. Um, at the end of our event, we uh, announced that we we, were, we will be launching um, a speaker series to kind of like further that conversation for us. And I think for us that has been important because the point of this event was to get that conversation started. We honestly didn't really know like what exactly it was going to look like. And, um, kind of like the moments leading up to us deciding that this is what we wanted to do. Um, but we also knew that like towards the end of it, we're also going to have to figure out what is it that we want to do moving forward because we knew that going into it that this was not something that we wanted to just kind of be like a one-off event and that's it you never hear from us again but more so how can we get to know other students who we can also hear their perspectives and opinions about what is, what's important to them so that we can organize together. And so at the end of our event, we announced that we will be launching a speaker series to further that conversation. And at this point, um, we've been brainstorming, taking the feedback from students in terms of like, what are different uh, topic areas or concerns that are important to kind of like um, preface um, and what are formats that are accessible to students. Students really enjoyed our event. And I think um, that was really inspiring for us more than anything. We wanted to kind of like put hope into the process to understand that like these are not issues that are going to be solved overnight. But I think if we all come together and we build relationships with one another and we try to understand what our different perspectives are, like I think we'll all we'll actually be able to make changes for the long for the long haul, sustainable changes. And I think a belief that like we all believe that like OT has the like OT has the potential to be able to kind of like help us solve some of like these uh, pressing issues and concerns that we have, especially because of the scope of 
the focus for OT being um, enabling occupation and that focus on like everyday living and everyday doing and being. Um, and so that's kind of where we ended off that we are in the works of like launching a speaker series, um, likely in a podcast format. It's we're still negotiating like what it is that like how we want to do it. But certainly we wanted to continue this conversation um, and see like where it can take us, because I think we were we were definitely onto something. Absolutely. And it kind of segues naturally into Holly in terms of when I think of speaker series and the Disrupt OT event, I feel like that was a, a mega speaker, speaker series. Um, Holly, what are your thoughts in terms of how, how this is connecting and, and, you know, how the community can continue to bring these important things forward? Yeah, thanks, Justine. Um, I was making some notes while you were talking, Samir, just to see like what the commonalities were between the two events, because the Disrupt OT event was really it was global so there's lots of different perspectives that were shared and it wasn't focused on um, any certain population or causes other than to disrupt what's happening within occupational therapy partly because the reasons you mentioned like if we live in a racist world racist systems we know that's true um, then what are we doing within our profession that is potentially uh, harmful racist all those things that we can um, I mean call a spade a spade right just name it as it is um, so the, the event was really surrounded or sorry, centering on what can we do, what needs to change and how do we make that happen? And so the three words that stuck out when you were talking were engagement. So coming together for like a shared a shared purpose or conversation, but really being engaged in that, not just turning on your computer for half a session and being like, oh, yeah, that's probably true. And then getting on with your day. But people who showed up to disrupt were really there because they they had there was buy-in to the event and what it stood for and it sounded like that was true of yours too people um, were showing up because they wanted to learn whether they're an ally or a um, person with lived experience um, and another thing that stood out was your you mentioned um, the motivation of people of color and allies are very different and that's something that i'm actually going to reflect on after this because i think that's an important point and it might have got you said so many other things that I feel like, oh, that like stood out to me, though. So the motivation of allies and their engagement or their buy in is very different than somebody who's basically advocating for their own identity and their own rights in this world and people who are like them. So I just wanted to highlight that again, because I think that was quite interesting when you said that. Um, and then the other two words were organized and social. So organized being people coming together in, in an organized way. So whether it's an event that has a speaker series or like Disrupt OT where it was a couple different um, panels. I think if there's organization, that's how protests and things in the past have been successful because it's a, a group of people coming together in uh, a somewhat organized way and pushing forward for a shared cause. And then the other one being social. And so I think both these events were, and any type of advocacy is really done in a social context because it's an exchange between two people or a person and a system or um, a clinician and a client. There's always a social relationship. And so I think those were like the main commonalities that I see between Disrupt OT being very social, building community. There's been emails back and forth since then about like, what are we doing next? Let's write a book. Let's do this. Like I, I can't spill the beans on what's coming, but again, it started something and then it's going to continue on. So thanks Holly for that. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's amazing the timing of these two events and the energy. It's like we've reached that tipping point and now there's no turning back. 
And currently, um, I'm adjunct faculty, and I have the opportunity to teach, um, you know, master's level OT students, and I really enjoy doing that. And I can't help but think with every, it's something that you had said when you shared the definition of uh, critical consciousness, Samira, that you can't just account for your positionality in the moment, but you have to continue to question everything you read. And so I have felt myself doing that, especially this term with the students. Every time we look at a case, you know, my my, my whole focus when I think, you know, when I graduated uh, 12, 13 years ago, where you're, you're focused on the medical condition and the problem that that person experiences, that's it's almost irrelevant in my mind these days, because the, the first thing that comes to mind when I read any case is who is this person and where are they from? and and how how important it is but how challenging it is to teach that because a lot of people are coming into not only um the profession of occupational therapy but i would argue into health professions still focused on fixing um a physical problem or a disability as the key focus as opposed to let's look at our makeup as human beings and the culture and background that we bring to the table. Um, but I feel that even if we were to start to think that way in terms of how we approach client care, how different our conversations would be. And so um, the last question I want to leave the two of you with today is Knowing that these events took place outside of the universities, outside of mainstream curriculum, and we talked a little bit about how we can try and create these spaces and, and snowball events um, following these type of uh, important events. I'm wondering um, what, what should universities be doing? Um, what are some key things that um, educators can be doing to ensure that we're creating these spaces? Because I think that that's a message that we need to, we need to send today. And um, I, I, for, for me, I'm thinking, you know, do we have representation on our faculty? Are we um, similar to the quota for male OTs and programs? Are we looking at cultural backgrounds? Maybe that's already happening. I'm not sure, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are. I think creating space for students of color to have these types of conversations and have a space where they feel that they're able to contribute to conversations that are happening within the university or within the institution. So if, for example, an OT program um, is concerned about representation or perhaps sending students on placements to ones that are going to be um, safe or appropriate or taking into consideration the um, desires and requests and needs of students who are of marginalized populations, I think could be something that even just having those conversations is a really important start. And then maybe in class, having them contribute to um, providing feedback on case studies that were presented. I know for me, sometimes I would read case studies and be like, this is so you know, outdated or whatever. And I'm a white identified student sitting in the classroom. So I couldn't imagine that there might be different perspectives that would really add value to the content that's actually delivered in small group um, tutorial, we call it, but I'm not sure, I think like case study groups. So having those types of conversations, asking for feedback, but then also doing something about the feedback that's received. I think starting there could be a good place. Um, but Samira, I'm really interested in your thoughts as well. If we're looking back to like, for example, like why these two events happened, um, especially like our student event that was more local, it's because we didn't have we don't have these spaces. And so we we just created it, um, I think spending some time kind of like running our own solo events at our institutions, we realize the importance of um, 
opening up dialogues to students across the country and wanting to get to know one another, um, understand like what makes you you, like why, like what's important to you and like what what has your struggle been like? Um, And knowing that it, it makes me wonder because we had to create this space for us. And this event was not easy to do. And so it kind of takes me back to that point that I raised about um, students of color are differently like motivated than um, allies. Um, our intentions are different because we live in the struggle. Like we live, we breathe the struggle. Um, and I think it also reflects like our different positionings in terms of like when you look at like intersectionality, like class, gender, race, and how all these other things kind of like um, shape the ways in which we then kind of like show up in the world um, and so forth. Putting together this event was not something that was easy, but we knew that we needed to create this space because um, our survival depended on it. Thinking about like, what does it mean to kind of like go into practice and unsure like, what is that going to look like? How are we going to be supported? Um, Being a student is very different than being a clinician in the real world and now having the responsibility of advocating and supporting clients of different communities who are experiencing all kinds of like different um, like health conditions, whatever it may be. And so we needed this event to be able to create a space where we can like meet other individuals that we can kind of like talk to about these issues and kind of like brainstorm, like what can we do about it? Um, But also when, when you look at the way the curriculum is set up, it's very easy for us to create I don't want to say create these events but it's we can't help but feel like we have to create these spaces because these spaces are not created in the programs themselves and so are we actually at the end of the day like are we taught how like I'm going to go to the example of like my own research um are we taught how to support a young black man experiencing a disability and how this individual is going to show up in the world? What are the challenges that they're going to experience? Finding occupation, all kinds of occupations, what like going back to school, like whatever it may be, like are we actually prepared to be able to support the the ways in which um, this individual is going to actually show up in the world and the, the different challenges that they're going to experience? Um, and when we sit and reflect on that question, what does it mean in terms of like what it is that we are being educated about and how does that then show up or not show up in what we're being taught? Um, and so it also raises the question of, okay, so if we are going to make edu- curriculum changes, like what is that supposed to look like? Is it one week on like intersectionality, one week on issues that impact indigenous peoples, a day or two or a week on issues that impact black populations? It's not the message that you, how you embed it within the curriculum also sends a message in terms of the priorities that students are going to take and how they're gonna take up that material. Um, And so who's supposed to be also teaching this? Um, Who's supposed to be creating or making these changes and then teaching that material? Um, It's not something that I believe it should be like distributed with like within the cur- like throughout the entire curriculum, not just a, a course in and of itself. Maybe a course is where you start, 
and then work your way backwards in terms of like how does that then get reflected into different aspects of the curriculum itself but also who teaches it because just because you are of a particular race doesn't mean you share the, the same experiences as everyone from that race. And I think that's something that's important to understand. Socioeconomic status, class, gender, all these different things impact how you carry yourself in the world. And as a result, what kinds of barriers and obstacles you um, get presented to you. And so I think it's, it's, it's a huge question. Um, and I think it's not some one that has like one solution, but I, I, I look at it as kind of like a, um, like if you look at like a word, not a word cow, but like a little bubble in the middle and then like so many different arrows coming out of it. There's so many variables to factor into if you want to do this correctly. And I think for all the things that we talked about, like those are all things that like need to be considered and factored into what does this mean for like the curriculum? Um, and how can we kind of like reflect on it in a way where it, it sends the right kind of message to students who probably may not even know that these are issues that they should be thinking about? And how do we equip them with the tools to be able to like not you're not going to learn everything that you need to as a student. Right. A lot of the learning is probably learning that you're going to have to do on the job. But I think there's a, a level of like compassion and empathy that needs to be fostered into the training itself so that you have, you're receptive to hearing these things and um, willing and knowing when to question and challenge, like when things are like not right and um, building, building like a community or a set of individuals that you can kind of like check in on um, when things don't feel right. And when you know that it's also impacting the kind of care that you're providing for that person. Um, I don't know if that answers it. It's such, I like the question. There's just so many, so many like different variables that like just impact, like how do you do this the right way? What do you have to consider? Samara, that was a tremendous answer. I feel you have provided not only solutions, but incredible important ideas for reflection that are needed um, by our listeners today. And I think some really tangible solutions for educators, um, curriculum designers, for uh, institutions that go beyond just the academy, but looking at um, the clinical spaces that we're working in. I think one of the most powerful things you just shared was saying that our survival depends on it. And the title of, of today's um, podcast is Social Accountability, Reflecting on Engagement with BIPOC Populations. If we're using that language survival, that's that's how important, that's how serious this is. Um, and it, it's such an, it, it's an incredible identifier in terms of why this has to be at the forefront for our educators. So um, it also complements exactly the messaging from WFOT this past month for OT Month and International OT Day, October 27th belong, be you. And so how are we supporting students, future clinicians and clinicians already in the workforce to be able to do that? And like you said, have the tools and abilities to feel equipped, um, to be competent in yourself, and then also the clients that you're serving because of that two-way intersectionality that you've, you've shared a lot of, Holly, in the last couple of podcasts, but not only the identity of who you are, but the identity of those that you're serving. 
So I really I want to thank you both for a tremendous conversation today. Um, I, I'm excited. <laughs> this conversation for me is one that will be ongoing for for many podcasts to come. So um, any final words, Holly? Otherwise, we will we will say goodbye for now. No, nothing to add. I just wanted to thank you for the conversation, Samira and Justine. I always walk away with so much to think about and reflect on and um, it's inspiring to know what's happening out there and, and that there are people who are pushing for change that's so needed and the effort and emotional labor that goes into it, it's it's not forgotten or it's not undervalued. So thank you, Samira, for everything that you do. And I look forward to reading more about your research and, and all of that. And thank you, Justine.